0: Okay, so we were talking about detectors. Um, We talked about laser sources and light sources, and then we were talking about detectors, and we finished up last time talking about the photodiode. Uh, The photodiode is a very common detector. Uh, It's very versatile, and it's typically used when you have a moderate amount of light that you're trying to detect, um, when you care about relative intensity on the diode. So you can generally make very good linear measurements, but the absolute calibration of photodiodes tends not to be ideal. Um, There are photodiodes materials that work in the visible and near-infrared. And we talked about some of the parameters, like the speed, or the response time, the responsivity, and things that you could look up in the data sheet, so you knew a little bit about um, what, what to look for when ordering one of these for an experiment. Now, once you have a photodiode that's suitable for your experiment, that's not the end of what you need to know about it, because using it properly uh, can be the difference, or how you use it can be the difference between getting correct and useful measurements and getting things that are, are not accurate. So a few, we'll go through a few uh, tricks or tips on proper use of photodiodes, as well as really any of the uh, detectors that we'll talk about, and then we'll go on and we'll talk about some other detectors, photomultiplier tubes, avalanche photodiodes, um, which are both much more useful when you have extremely low level of intensity that you're trying to detect. And then we'll talk about about more methods for measuring uh, different types of measurements, so pulses, pulse lengths, um, things like that. So when you choose a photodetector if you're trying to detect a beam, you generally want the photodetector to be much larger than the beam um, so that you get the entire power in the beam. Um, Laser beams tend to have a Gaussian profile and we went over this a bit last time. We said that within uh, one waste the irradiance contained in that area actually I don't know if we described the irradiance contained in the area, but the irradiance at that point is down to 13% of the peak irradiance. You go out to 2W it's like 97% of the power um, and As you get further and further away, you get closer to containing 100% of the power within that radius. A rule of thumb is you want to have at least three times bigger photodiode than you have a beam that you're illuminating it with. Um, of course, it's going to depend on how close you need to get to 100%. It's Usually not the, uh, the total power that you're integrating that is an issue if your diode is too small. Um, usually the problem that you'll have if your diode is too small Let's say you had a photodiode that was the same size as the Gaussian width of your beam. Okay, So you were detecting most of the light, but you had a significant amount of energy in the tails that was not being detected by your photodetector. One of the problems you can encounter here is that if your beam jitters, and they typically do, the mirror that steers your beam onto your photodetector is excited by acoustic vibrations or seismic mo- noise or any sort of motion that will cause the beam to move around relative to the photodiode. What's that going to appear like on your detector? It's going to be intensity noise. So as the peak moves off of and back onto the photodetector, you're going to get intensity noise. Now. You can minimize that by centering the the Gaussian beam spot on the diode. If it's centered, then you only have a second order dependence as the uh, peak vibrates around that center point. If it's off-center at all, then there would be a first order dependence as the peak would be moving onto and then off of the detector. Okay, So having a big detector and having it centered on your beam is important. Um, just a practical point The way to tell that a, a beam is centered on a detector is generally have some mirror that you can tilt and steer the beam onto the detector and as you steer the beam across the detector what you should see on, say, an oscilloscope or a voltmeter connected to your detector you should see the signal rise up as the beam goes onto the detector and then should be flat as the beam is entirely contained within the detector region and moves across the detector okay, So this would be plotting as a function of uh, position of the beam And this would be the power If you don't have a clipped peak like that If instead if you were to see something like that It means that at any point as the beam is moving it's either getting more onto the detector or once you pass this point further off of the detector there's never a point where it's fully contained on the detector okay so that's this situation in green is not desirable now even if your beam is smaller than the the photodiode and it's centered on the photodiode there can still be issues in that the response of the diode across the entire surface is not necessarily uniform. The biggest problem that can cause it to not be uniform is dirt, dust, and cracks. Those are localized and can produce the same types of problems you'd have if the beam were bigger than the, the detector. So if you had, for example, a dead region over here, It could be dead because there's some dirt sitting on top of it or it could be dead because there's some intrinsic defect in the silicon. Um, Then you're going to have a little hole in your spatial sensitivity profile right here and as the beam center moves closer to that hole, it's going to reduce the amount of, of signal coming out of the detector. As it moves away and the power at that dead point goes down, you're going to increase the amount of signal you have. So that's a common problem. Um, and it's generally easy to detect just by, as I mentioned over here, scanning the position of the beam and looking for a uniform signal coming out of the detector when the beam is centered on the detector. Now when we're detecting light, especially when we're detecting low signal levels, um, background noise can be a real issue. so background noise, optical background noise, is is just the ambient light. If you're trying to detect some DC value for the light, and let me draw up a hypothetical experiment here. Let's take a laser and imagine shooting it into a gas. And if that laser is tuned to transition, an atomic transition of the gas, we can excite molecules into the upper state. They'll decay to the lower state, giving off fluorescence. That fluorescence is isotropic, so it goes in all directions. And we can imagine putting a photodetector over here and looking for the presence of that fluorescence. So we might tune the laser in frequency until we see fluorescence, and then we would know the laser is tuned onto resonance in the gas. that might be a typical measurement that you would make. Now, fluorescence is just this background light coming from your source. And it may be very weak. Unlike the laser beam, which is focused in a beam, This fluorescence is isotropic It's scattering in all directions And the energy in the fluorescence Or the power in the fluorescence Is certainly less than the power being put in by the laser beam Which may be a few milliwatts It may be a small fraction of that So we may be looking at a a trace background That could be difficult to detect Certainly when you're doing it in an environment Where there's room lights and such So certainly you can shield ambient light you can turn off room lights. You can put, um, you can put shades over the uh, detector to try to back-minimize the uh, room light. There's something else that's a little more frequently done. And it's a, it's a very common experimental technique, but it's also something that, although you might not think about it, is, is actually something that we do all the time. So to figure out if a light is working, you flip it on, flip it off. Flip it on, flip it off. If I wanted to check if this light switch controlled anything. I could flip it on, flip it off. And maybe I'm not in a place where I can see the light directly. Right? So maybe my porch light is connected to a light switch. And I don't know if the light's working. Um, but I can't look out the porch and actually see the light. If I flip it on and flip it off, I might be able to tell whether I see a blinking out there. right? Whereas if I just turn it on and look out, I can't tell if the ambient illumination is due to the porch light or the street light or the moonlight or what. But if I turn it on and off and I see the ambient illumination blinking at the same rate I'm turning it on and off, I can be pretty sure it's because the porch light is working. And you typically do the same thing in these types of experiments, where when you have um, a low amount of light such that the ambient light can be significant, you modulate The signal you're trying to detect, and then you look at some higher frequency where there is not so much light energy present. Okay, so we could, for example, put a chopper on this laser beam. So a chopper is just a spinning disc that has holes cut out of it. So it does exactly what it sounds like it chops the beam. So you might spin this at, say, 1,000 hertz and maybe it's got four holes in it, so the laser light will be blinking at 4,000 hertz, 4 kilohertz, then you should see this fluorescence also have a spectral component at 4,000 hertz. So whatever signal you detect, when you look at the fast Fourier transform of it on an oscilloscope or on a, a spectral analyzer, you should see a component at the frequency with which you're chopping. And there's devices that are designed specifically to do that type of measurement called lock-in amplifiers that we'll talk about in a few minutes okay, but you can see much smaller signals than you would be if you tried to detect the, uh, the fluorescence from a, a cw laser source that was not modulated so those are some of the methods to get around the optical noise um, but there can also be electronic noise Due to, well, due to all sorts of things at low frequency. The amplifier circuit, um, all electronics have low frequency noise. And so you may find that it's necessary to use a different type of electronic system. We'll talk about the photomultiplier tube and its, um, its high voltage system and its, its uh, large gain in the tube. Or you may find it necessary to modulate your signal to get away from the uh, electronic noise at low frequencies. It may not be optical noise. It may be electronic noise that you need to get away from. And when you do that, that's usually called heterodyne detection. It's very similar to... It's the same mechanism as chopping in lock-in detection. Just a slightly different term. Okay, so... The photodiode is one device which converts an optical signal into an electrical signal. Another which is complementary, it really doesn't have much overlap in the uh, functionality that the photodiode has, is the photomultiplier tube or PMT. These are, compared to a photodiode, these are huge devices. They're essentially vacuum tubes, so there's a picture of one. They require high voltage, several kilovolts, to operate. So they're much more cumbersome than a little photodiode that you can just integrate into a circuit and build right into a a little uh, hobby box. A photomultiplier tube operates on the principle of the photoelectric effect, which is that up here there's some metal, and when light... That has photons of high enough energy hit that metal, they can eject an electron. And So if it has perfect quantum efficiency, every photon that comes in, assuming its frequency is high enough, will eject an electron. And you can convert a photocurrent to an electrical current. And then what makes this uh, particularly sensitive at low frequencies or at low, low intensities is that it's got a series of Electrodes, each of higher and higher voltage that attract the ejected electrons. So the first ejected electron is attracted to this first dynode, and when it hits, its kinetic energy causes more electrons to get ejected and those get attracted to this higher voltage dynode over here and a cascade forms and by the time this anode is reached there's a shower of of electrons. So a single photon can produce a burst of electrical current. So these devices are very sensitive, they're capable of detecting single photons, but they're not good for detecting much higher power. One of the problems that you run into is if you had, say, a, a laser beam with, with any appreciable amount of power in it, hitting this, uh, this surface up here, the continuous flow of electrons from that surface would cause the anode down here to become saturated. It'd essentially be ripping off all available electrons from these intermediate multiplier dynodes well before you reached the. Uh, it would saturate well before you reached any sort of power that you would typically have in a laser beam. So these are useful, for example, in experiments like this, where you're detecting a weak amount of energy that is coming out from a material, not the laser that's directly exciting it. So you can think of these as useful for single photon detection, or for a small number of photon detection. Now, these aren't perfect. The quantum efficiency isn't ever 100%. Um you can see it's plotted here as a function of wavelength and so you can get different photomultiplier tubes that have different spectral characteristics Um, but they all have some frequency or some wavelength below which they work they won't work above that wavelength because there won't be enough energy in the photons to excite that first electron due to the photoelectric effect so they all have a sharp cutoff at higher frequencies And we can talk about the current at the anode as a function of the current at the cathode. The current at the cathode at the top, where the photon hits, depends on their flow rate of photons. So N dot is the number rate of photons hitting the cathode times the quantum efficiency. So if the quantum efficiency is one, and every photon produces an electron, And we're converting photons per second into electrons per second, which is is amps, or which is a current. Okay, so we can write the number rate of photons in terms of the power. It's the power divided by the energy per photon. The energy per photon is hc over lambda. So n dot becomes power times lambda over hc. So we get an expression for the current leaving the cathode as a function of the optical power incident on the cathode in the wavelength of light. And then when it goes through the photomultiplier tube, when the, when the single electron gets amplified by the series of dynodes, it experiences some gain, which we'll just call G, the several thousand. And that gives us the photo or the electrical current at the anode. So PMTs are useful for measuring fluorescence, other low irradiance sources, um, single photon counting. You can essentially treat this as a pulse counter. Every photon that comes in produces enough current, or enough electrical current to easily be detectable, then you can measure pulses and essentially count photons one by one using this method rather than thinking of it as a a power to voltage or power to amplitude of your signal converter. You can think of it as a counter. Okay, so... There is now a solid-state device that's basically equivalent to the photomultiplier tube. In the past 10 10 years or so, this has become a uh, common commercial product. It's the avalanche photodiode. The avalanche term suggests the uh, amplification of a single single photon to produce many more electrons in the uh, output photocurrent. And so, like the PMT, it... uh, it's sensitive for very low power levels it has a higher quantum efficiency and a much lower supply voltage so you can operate it under normal normal circuit voltages as opposed to the kilovolt scale supply you need for PMT. so it's much more manageable they're small they can be integrated into uh, circuits very easily but the fact that they're small Sometimes a bad thing If you're trying to detect, for example, fluorescence Or um, Light, which is Which is not intense In part because it's Spreading isotropically One of the things you'd like to do is have a big detector To detect as much area as possible To improve your uh, Detected signal level And so these typically are the same size As as photodiodes They're from 10 microns To 10 millimeters in size, and so that can be a disadvantage. Okay, two more types of detectors we'll talk about. The microchannel plate is again very similar to the concept of the photomultiplier tube, except that you have a plate where there's these microchannels cutting it. A voltage is applied across the plate, and the idea is the same that an incident photon striking the top surface ejects an electron from that top surface, and the, the voltage gradient across this plate from the top to the bottom causes the electron to get pulled down, and if it collides with a wall, it can eject multiple electrons, so you get a cascade of electrons producing a much larger electrical current at the bottom than you have at the top. And so this type of detector is built in an array which makes it useful for imaging. So The other detectors just detected power in a single element um, this is capable of, of doing imaging, and one way to do that is put a phosphorescent screen in the bottom, and then the flow of electrons coming through these channels illuminate the phosphorescent screen just the way a CRT television would work. Okay, and then the last type of detector we're going to talk about is another one where um, it's, it's complementary to photodiodes. Um, photodiodes are perhaps the most common type of detector that you'll see in, in uh, optics labs. But the thermal detector is a device that, um, unlike the photodiode, where there's some quantum effect where a single electron is being produced by a single photon, a thermal detector just measures the power absorbed in the detector by measuring the heat, the temperature rise of the detector itself. Um, There's a few reasons why you might want to do that. One is it's completely, or virtually, completely insensitive to wavelength. Essentially, you have some black box that the light goes into, and as long as that is black and opaque to the wavelength you're interested in, it will absorb the light, and it will then increase its temperature based on how much power is in the light. Um, There's not a lot in that process that can screw things up. So it's capable of handling much higher power, certainly much higher power than a PMT, much higher power than photodiodes. Um, They'll tend to saturate as well. And the nice thing about this is it's it gives you a nice absolute measurement. Where the other detectors we've talked about so far generally require some sort of external calibration in order to be able to say anything about the absolute power being detected. They're generally very useful for relative power fluctuations. Um, But you can see even from talking about the amount of power captured by a finite size detector, There's already one source of uncertainty there if you have a small detector and a large beam. um, There's many more sources of, of scaling that need to be understood in order to make absolute measurements with other types of devices. A thermal power meter, if you measure the temperature rise of a material, you know how much heat was put into it. And you can easily relate that to the power in the optical beam that heated it up. So there's very little that needs to be understood in order to back out an absolute value for the power in a calorimeter. Okay, so imagine this is an absorber. It might be a thin disc that's essentially black at the wavelengths of interest, or it could be some sort of cavity with a small hole drilled in it so that the light can get in, and essentially bounce around inside of the cavity. Uh, getting absorbed on the walls before it has a chance to leave. And we'll see reasons why you might want one or the other in a minute. Um, And so some fraction of the incident light is absorbed here. Ideally, that fraction is 100%, or is is 1. That causes the absorber to heat up due to the added thermal energy. So the amount it heats up depends on how much power you put in, but it also depends on um, how much thermal capacity this absorber has. So if it's small, then a given amount of heat will change its temperature much more and it will be a more sensitive instrument. But if it's big, you can make something that captures all of the light a little bit more easily. So there's a trade-off there. And essentially what you do is you measure the temperature of this and relate that back to the optical power. Okay, so a few equations that govern the processes. Um, the incident power is P and if we allow a fraction of that eta to be absorbed so eta is the efficiency of all of our detectors we're always considering this the quantum efficiency the fractional number of photons that are being absorbed so this is the power being deposited as heat, that has to go somewhere and there are essentially two places it can go it can go into heating up the absorber or it can go into heating up the surroundings and right? both of those processes will happen. So, heating up the absorber occurs when you have a material of a specific heat capacity, C sub A. Then, the um, amount of thermal energy in that material when it changes its temperature by an amount capital T, or D capital T, uh, looks like this. If we we, for a moment, ignore the per-unit per time part of it. It would say if we put in a certain amount of energy, we get a certain amount of temperature change. But we're not putting in energy, we're putting in energy per unit time. So we get a temperature, not a temperature change, but a rate of temperature change. So we leave the beam on, the temperature continues to rise, according to this term. Of course, as the material gets hot, it will... Transmit some of that heat to its environment. And so we'll describe the heat transferred to the environment by some effective thermal conductivity, G, that depends on the difference in temperature between the absorber and the surroundings. So if the absorber is well insulated, then G will be small, and there won't be efficient heat transfer to the surroundings. And then likewise, if G is large, the heat will quickly be transmitted to the surroundings. The more heat gets transmitted to the surroundings, the bigger this term and the smaller this term, the smaller the change in the temperature. So if we consider what happens if we have some power, which is a sinusoidal function of time, There's some average power and then there's some fluctuation on top of that that we might be interested in detecting. We can put that power into this equation. The left side depends on time, the right side depends on time. It's a first-order differential equation. so We can solve that and we get a temperature for the absorber, T sub A, that depends on the surrounding temperature plus some additional change due to the incident power. The magnitude of that change is given by this expression here. This may look familiar to you from the classical electron oscillator model where we're solving differential equations for the magnitude of the uh, electron displacement. This time I'm not going to go through the math. I'll just quote the results. But we see that eta p naught a is the amount of power absorbed at frequency omega and then the term in the denominator is essentially the um, the coefficient between the absorbed power and the change in temperature and it has a part which depends on the conductivity to the surroundings and a part which depends on the thermal capacity of the material those two things add in quadrature so we can calculate the amount of temperature change and we can see, for example, that if G is small that temperature change will be large and if the, the mass is small that also will produce a much larger temperature change so, those are desirable quantities to have small in terms of the sensitivity. So that's a reason why you might make this absorber very, st- maybe like a thin disk, uh, very thin, just thick enough to absorb the light without being transparent, and just wide enough to capture all of the light that you're interested in detecting. There's also this phase term that gets added to the fluctuation in temperature, the time dependence of the fluctuation in temperature, relative to the driving power. Okay, so there's a phase delay. And understanding about the little, a little bit about the phase delay will tell us a little bit about the, the temporal response of the system. So that phase delay is given by the arctangent of the... Um, thermal conductivity terms on the top or the thermal capacity terms on the top and the thermal conductivity term in the denominator so what we see here is a small g a small conductivity to the surroundings means a large value for tangent or means a large value what did I say, did I say small g or big g? small g means a big value for phi which means a large time delay so if this thing is well insulated then there's a large thermal lag same thing with a house if a house is well insulated and it gets hot out, you don't feel it right away you don't takes a couple days of being hot outside before the house starts to get hot Um, and that's the case here as well but a small heat capacity a small mass or material with a small specific heat has the effect of increasing the sensitivity So small thermal capacity means good sensitivity, and it also means fast response. So ideally what you'd like is good sensitivity and fast response. So that means the first thing that you'd want to do is is make this detector small. So generally, if you want optimal performance out of this, you'll buy it. Thermal detector that's just big enough to capture the beam that you're interested in detecting and no bigger. Having it well insulated helps the sensitivity, but it doesn't help the uh, temporal response. So in practice, you can make these things out of thin films so a little thin film of graphite, that's a few microns thick that allows it to be pretty fast um, the disadvantage is it makes it more easily damageable so you get higher temperature changes it's easier to damage the material, it doesn't have the mechanical strength either um, so for the thin disc for the thin film detector is about one watt of power Is sort of the reasonable limit So that's That's a lot of power compared to like a PMT Or even a photodiode Photodiodes might only Handle 1 to 10 milliwatts Um, But it's certainly not Enough power to detect An arbitrary laser system So there are lasers available that go to kilowatts of power, of average power so if you were working in a high power laser lab you probably wouldn't want to have a system that had that limitation Um, you might find that rather than making the the mass small you'd be better off to make the the device well insulated lowering G and just accepting the fact that it's going to have a slow time response using it to measure absolute powers, not rapidly changing power fluctuations. So you can make G small, um, but there's a limit to how small you can make G. That comes from the fact that even if there's no no medium which can support thermal conductivity to the surroundings, there's still black-body radiation. If this heats up, it's going to be giving off black-body radiation, and it's going to be giving off more than it absorbs. It's going to radiate away energy. So the amount of power given off by black body radiation is uh, from the Stefan-Boltzmann law. The area of the the, uh, absorber, or the emitter, times epsilon sigma. Sigma is the Stefan-Boltzmann constant, or the... uh, that's right, the Stefan-Boltzmann constant, times the temperature to the fourth power of the absorber. That's what it's going to give off. It's going to absorb the same amount of power from the surroundings, but it's the temperature of the surroundings that's producing them. So there's a temperature of the absorber to the fourth minus temperature of the surroundings to the fourth. And so we can linearize this, this expression around the surrounding temperature. The absorber will always be relatively close to the surrounding temperature. When you think of an absolute scale. So the surrounding temperature is likely going to be 300 Kelvin or so. The absorber may be a bit above or below that. Um, and so if we take the Taylor series expansion of this for TA equals T surroundings plus delta T, we can write that as some constant, which depends on the temperature of the surroundings to the third power times the change in temperature relative to the ambient. So this becomes our effective thermal conductivity from the absorber to the surroundings. And you could cool that if you really wanted to, Uh, to reduce that. You get a, a large gain due to cooling. So if you went to liquid nitrogen and cooled to 77 Kelvin, um, you'd be getting a gain of a factor of 10 or so. And that sets an ultimate limit on how low you can make the thermal conductivity. Okay, now we were describing... The calorimeter as a detector for CW radiation we said that there was uh, an incident beam that had some power with some temporal fluctuation on top of it we solved its uh, temperature change as a function of that uh, fluctuation we can also consider what happens when we send short pulses into this detector so it's a thermal detector it's generally gonna have a long time scale could be in the order of seconds so a short pulse doesn't even have to be that short to be faster than the response time of the detector so, what the detector will do is it will integrate essentially over the entire pulse. So, all the energy in the pulse goes into the detector and goes into the temperature rise. So, this is essentially the same equation we had before. We ignore the con- conduction to the surroundings because that is a slow process. This material has to heat up before that can happen. And so, if we're hitting it with a short pulse, and then measuring the temperature immediately thereafter. You can essentially ignore that and solve for the temperature change. And it's a function of the total integrated energy in the pulse. Okay, so those are all the types of detectors I wanted to talk about. And we'll go on and talk more about some of the uh, proper usages of the detectors. Sort of where we started out. And once we finish that, we'll leave detecting the irradiance and we'll move on to trying to detect the wavelength Talking talk about how that's done. So any questions about the different uh, detectors up until now? Um, When you go to, well... the the difference between an avalanche photodiode and a photomultiplier tube is a photomultiplier tube is a piece of metal a bunch of pieces of metal that are basically attached together and then uh, an avalanche photodiode is a semiconductor that's been lithographically manufactured so um, it's probably to go to a large scale would increase the cost because it would decrease the yield and such Um, in practice if you just look at what's available to purchase um, they're in the same size as as regular photo detectors. Yeah. No. No. Uh, yeah. I don't mention CCDs. Maybe I should. But um Because the what problem? Yes. So there's thermal noise in all these detectors, and they can all be improved by cooling. Um, some of it comes from mechanisms in the detector themselves. So, like in the photomultiplier tube, um, you can get you can get uh, a couple sources of noise in the photomultiplier tube. I didn't didn't talk about. Um, you can get. Electrons spontaneously leaving the surface just due to thermal energy. You can eliminate that by cooling it. You can get electrons emitting from the surface due to uh, radioactive bombardment. So if there's any radioactive material in the tube itself, that can give rise to spurious signals. And there typically is, if you just take a random metal and you don't screen it to make sure the isotopes are... are, uh, free of anything that's radioactive. And then the other one, which you can't avoid, is cosmic rays. Cosmic rays can come down, and they're generally high energy, and can kick off an electron, and those occur at, you know, several per hour. So if you're photon counting, there's no way around that. Um, No, I'm not going to talk about CCDs. I didn't include it, because it's usually... um, an imaging detector. And although I mentioned microchannel plates, I was pretty much focusing on things where you have a single pixel. I was just thinking I was of the spectrometers they all Yeah. I can I can put a slide together on it for next time. Uh, why don't we take like a two minute break and uh, we'll talk about the different detection methods We'll talk about that um, when we do wavelength measurements. But um, So you could use a CCD or an array detector and then just look at where the peak of the intensity is. Um, and it used to be photographic film, but if you're interested in very narrow spectral regions, spectral features, then you're probably not gonna use a prism and see enough deviation anyways to pick it up on a CCD. So then what you'd probably do is either use something like a uh, a fabry pro interferometer. You can scan the length, and the interference fringes that you see are a function of wavelength. Um, and so, usually, you need some calibration signal, some known frequency, and then some spectral structure around that. And then, if you can pinpoint in your interferogram where that known frequency is, you can deduce the uh, wavelength of the others. So, the the, prism, the nice thing about a prism is, it is, and gives you an absolute measurement. So light goes in and depending on wavelength, it gets bent at different angles. And it's a monotonic spread. Most of the other more sensitive devices have improved sensitivity over the prism, but then they alias. So there's a whole series of wavelengths that will all produce the same signal. And so you need to know which of the series you're detecting. So typically use them in conjunction. So something like a CCD based spectrometer could tell you the rough wavelength. And then you could look with an interferometer and observe the spectral characteristics around that known frequency. The interferometer itself wouldn't tell you the the absolute frequency, but it'll tell you the relative spacing of the structure. So um, yeah, it's usually a two-step process. Okay, so if you're using any of these detectors, I mentioned that there's some good practices to follow. One is making sure the detector is large enough, that the beam is centered. Um, that the detector is clean and not damaged, of course. Um, Oftentimes you'll find that with the signal that you're trying to detect, it will saturate your detector, so a common thing to do is attenuate it. You can put in a neutral density filter, which is basically sunglasses, or you can split some of the light with a beam splitter. Um, Let's say we're trying to do this. this. Measure the uh, light coming from a laser that goes through a gas. Maybe we'll measure the fluorescence and we'll measure the light that's transmitted. And as we tune the laser through the atomic resonance, we should see the transmitted power have a dip in it and the fluorescence have a spike. Right? So let's say you put a, maybe a photodiode here. You're going to be measuring relatively uh, high-intensity power or high-intensity radiation coming from the laser because you're looking directly into it. This detector is looking at the fluorescence coming from the gas. It's less direct and there's much less irradiance there, so this might be a photomultiplier tube. And then you might find that the photodiode is saturating, which may or may not be obvious. Typically what you want to be able to do is somehow adjust the laser power and see if the signal from the photodiode adjusts accordingly. So maybe you have a a... neutral density filter that cuts the power in half that would be considered an ND3 filter the uh, number of decibels of attenuation is described as the density so 3 dB of attenuation would cut the power in half if you place it here in front of the laser your photodetector signal should drop in half if it doesn't keep putting in filters until you reach the linear regime of the photodiode. Then once you've got all those filters in place, it's tempting to just do the experiment and tune the laser frequency. Maybe you've got some knob that you can tune that on and then measure as a function of frequency power from the photodetector. You don't want to do that. At least not like that. It's better to put those neutral density filters right on top of the photodiode. So the reason is you're also going to be attenuating the ambient light. Not just the laser light. What you don't want to do is attenuate the signal more strongly than you're attenuating any background noise. So if you put it right in front of the filter, or the filter right in front of the detector, you attenuate both by the same amount. Um, could also shade the whole thing, you don't want room light to leak in like that, so just a little bit of shading will help, a little bit of black cloth or something around it. You may find, particularly if this laser is like a dye laser that can tune over hundreds of nanometers, that this plot, even if there's no spectral content due to the gas, what should be a uniform response is not. You might see something like this. It may be tracing out the quantum, or the spectral sensitivity of the detector if you can tune over a large enough region. So you may need to account, uh, to account for that if you're trying to, to get um, some absolute measurement here. You can either account for that in software analysis or software afterwards by compensating for the uh, spectral response, or you can put in certain filters that have the converse behavior. Um, There shouldn't be. There shouldn't be any significant change over time the things that will happen over time is dirt and cracks. And particularly if you're using these neutral density filters, that can be an issue. Anytime you have a neutral density filter in front of your detector, you have to be aware of the possibility of cracks, because A, the reason you've got the neutral density filter is because you're using high-intensity light. It's it's saturating the detector. Um, And that means, especially if the light gets focused onto the the neutral density filters, it can burn holes in them if a piece of, even, if it, even if it's sitting there fine a piece of dust falls in the intense light it can burn that up and produce localized heating that cracks the glass something like that if you get a crack, even a microscopic one the problem is it lets light through without attenuating it and so um, you might get a very large signal when the beam is centered on that crack and typically when you're aligning photodetectors what you do is you align it to the biggest signal And you don't want it aligned so that it's just going through that crack. So there can be things that change as a function of time, but it shouldn't be the intrinsic properties of the photodetector. Well, it's very noticeable, but you have to know what you're looking for in order to notice it as a problem. So it's very easy just to align things, and all of a sudden you get this huge signal. Say, oh, I'm really well aligned. And it may be that you're really well aligned, or it may be that you're really well aligned to a crack or a hole or something that shouldn't be there. Okay, so you might measure the photocurrent directly. That's probably what you would do with a photodiode. Build this little circuit around that that converts the uh, input signal into a voltage and then just record the time series of that voltage. You could count photons, which is what you'd probably do with the PMT. If you were looking at a very low level, you could count photons. Another thing you might do in order to circumvent, say, the low frequency noise that's going to be intrinsic in this system is modulate your signal. So we could put that chopper in here and look for high-frequency signal here in the fluorescence. We can do that with a lock-in amplifier. If we have a pulsed system, we use a system called a boxcar integrator. Or if you're looking at really fast signals, you can use essentially an optical oscilloscope, which is called the streak camera. So let's look at a few of the different configurations you might use. So the direct photocurrent measurement, we talked a little bit about this last time, but typically you use a photodiode in reverse bias so without any light present, current doesn't flow because the voltage trying to drive current is reversed relative to the forward direction of the diode. The presence of an electron produces an electron or a photon produces an electron hole pair which conducts and produces a current flowing through there And in order to convert that current into a voltage, it needs to go across the resistor. So you can either supply your own resistor or whatever cable you plug into this device is eventually going to go into some meter or some device which has an internal impedance, or an input impedance, in which case that would become the resistor that the current flows through, producing a voltage there. That's the simplest way to use this. If you just have a bare photodiode off the shelf and you're just trying to detect power and you're not that concerned about the, the response time, just put a 50-ohm resistor between one lead and ground, attach the other one to a voltage, and read out the top of that resistor. It's easy to do. And if you need to change the gain, you just change the resistor. Okay? The response time suffers, though, because there's this internal shunt capacitance inside the photodiode it's just the intrinsic capacitance between the electrodes that at high enough frequencies will be the path that the photocurrent takes to ground so you don't get at that point at higher frequencies, you don't get the full voltage drop across the resistor and so that starts to suffer at high frequencies you can circumvent that with an op-amp circuit that looks like this called the transimpedance amp So even when the effect of the, next of the intrinsic capacitance is included, there's still a low impedance path to ground here that the current can take, and then it gets pulled through by the op amp through this resistor. And this resistor is the one that then would determine the voltage you'd have here at the output. So these circuits you can look up; you can look up online in the data sheets for the different photodetectors, or in uh, any optics. Or any text that deals with optics and electronics. Okay, for the PMT, or the very low sensitivity measurements, or the low threshold measurements, uh, we're likely to do photon counting. You can essentially use the photocurrent that comes out of the the, uh, PMT as a trigger for a TTL signal. TTL is just a 5-volt transistor-transistor logic signal, so it's a digital signal. So you can set up some sort of uh, threshold, some sort of comparator that uh, drives the TTL signal. And one of the reasons you do that is in that way fluctuations in the uh, gain of the detector or saturation of the detector don't affect the measurement. It's a digital measurement. It's either on or off. You're either detecting a photon or you're not. Um, The rate at which you count, though, is going to be limited by how long you're averaging in your uh, comparator and by the rate of dark pulses. I said that you're going to have usually several pulses due to cosmic rays per hour. So you don't want to integrate over so long a time that you're going to be essentially measuring dark current all the time. The lock-in amplifier is a device that measures the amount of a signal at some particular frequency. That frequency is usually produced by a chopper, so like I, I drew up here. You could take that chopper and you could put it here and chop the pump. In our case we have a laser that's pumping this gas that then produces fluorescence. And so if you modulate the pump you're also going to then modulate the fluorescence that comes out. And this device has two inputs. One comes from your detector, and the other one comes from the chopper. And essentially the chopper has a little photocell in it that just measures, uh, just measures the rate at which it's chopping the beam. So it's got a little photo cell that it's chopping as well producing a little digital signal that's on whenever the light's essentially being transmitted and off when it's not. And that gets fed over here to the lock-in. And it tells it what frequency it should lock into and make the measurement at. And so this device can average over a very long time, over many cycles, and produce a very low noise measurement of the amount of power in in that frequency range at which you're chopping. so You can chop the pump like this, or you could chop the probe. You could put the chopper here, the output of the fluorescence. You generally don't want to put the chopper right in front of your photomultiplier tube or in front of your detector. You don't want it to be chopping the ambient light, which would be a source of noise. You want to chop the signal and none of the noise. Because what you chop is then what you detect. So if you put it right here in front of the detector and you've got room lights coming through, you're chopping those, you're going to detect those as well. So in this configuration I showed over here, you'd be better putting it in front of the laser. There may be reasons you can't do that. You know, Maybe for this detector over here, you need the light unchopped. So you might be forced to put it over here. If you're measuring repetitive pulses that are short, one of the problems is, in order to reduce noise, you'd like to average your signal over a long period of time, but if the pulses are short, you can't readily do that. So there's a device called a boxcar integrator, and what it does, as long as the pulse is repetitive, it samples a particular point on the pulse, for many successive pulses. it gets triggered by the leading edge of the pulse or by some trigger that you send to it. Much like an, it's very much like an oscilloscope in the sense that it's basically going to keep repeating the same measurement over and over, and as long as it's synchronized at any point on the measurement it can average. That's what an oscilloscope does as well. So it might be triggered by the leading edge of this pulse it has an adjustable delay, so you might have it delay a certain length of time measure over some short time window average that signal and average it with the next pulse and the pulse after that and the pulse after that so it would always be averaging this part of the pulse and then as you adjust the delay you could measure a different part of the pulse and as you sweep the delay from zero to the full pulse width you could map out the shape of that pulse doing averaging on each measurement over many pulses so you could reduce the effective noise in that sense your pulses are very short, so they're beyond the uh, temporal response of the boxcar integrator. A technique you can use to measure the pulse shape is called a streak camera. This is very much like an oscilloscope. The idea is that your light pulse gets converted into a current by a phosphorescent screen. or some some screen which has electrons that get ejected when an optical beam hits it. So the number of electrons being ejected is gonna be essentially proportional to the irradiance of the pulse. So if this is my input pulse, you can sort of see that shape mapped out on the density of electrons being ejected. And then if you accelerate those towards the screen, with some static voltage, they would produce a spot on this phosphorescent screen. And now, if you apply a time varying transverse electric field, you can get this uh, longitudinal distribution of electron density to be converted into a transverse distribution. So on your screen, you could see the intensity of the pulse plotted as a function of here is a function of position, but that position would represent time. So it's an analog measurement, but it's a method of visualizing very short pulses. There are other ways to deal with short pulse detection, Neil you know of a couple. I was thinking of the autocorrelator, which, which you gave a talk on last semester, but you may know more than one. Okay, so um, those are different devices you can use to detect different types of pulses or beams. Um, I want to talk about one more method that gets used, and then this will be the last thing we talk about today. Next time, we'll talk about wavelength measurements. Um, but frequently you'd like to make some measurement and the detector you're using is not linear or you don't understand its properties very well or well enough so let's say the uh, I want to call it the uh, Call it V out. The voltage out of your detector is a function of the power in. Let's say it's not a nice straight line. You don't have a linear relationship. Maybe you're operating high power laser. You're up here in your saturation. Um, there could be a lot of a lot of reasons why the system's not linear around the region that you're interested in. Maybe you have a very large dynamic range for your system so the power is going to be varying greatly and you, there's no way to keep it in a linear regime. Um, there's a technique called active feedback which allows you to overcome uncertainty in the response of the detector if you have an actuator that you have much more Um, confidence in so let's take an example of let's say there's some material here again we'll assume this is a gas maybe this is a gas that's not just a sample that we've prepared ahead of time but maybe this is something that we're measuring in real time like gas coming out of the tailpipe of a car And so there's going to be properties of this that are dynamic. So maybe we're measuring carbon dioxide or something, and the amount varies tremendously when the car is idling or not or whatever. So let's say we're at the EPA doing tests. And we've got a detector which has some sort of response like this. It's not linear, so we can't just measure an output voltage and relate that to the parameters of the gas that we're trying to measure um, what we might do instead is build a circuit where you measure the output voltage and then you have some comparator that compares it to a reference voltage okay, so let's say it's some reference voltage say how much above or below is it than that and if it's above it you then attenuate the laser if it's below it you amplify it So you have this produce negative feedback. So you've got some sort of modulator here. Maybe an electro-optic modulator between cross polarizers. That would allow you to vary the laser power coming out. And essentially, when the signal gets too low, you turn up the power. When it gets too high, you turn it down. And in that way, you always keep the photodetector operating at the reference voltage. So you don't have to worry about variations in the response of the photodetector. You could then read off the signal you're using to drive your modulator. And if you know the response of this modulator better than you know the response of the detector you can convert that signal into a measurement of how much the power fluctuated. Right? In the absence of any power fluctuation, this output voltage, let's say, is zero. The power fluctuates up, let's say this voltage goes down, the power fluctuates down, that voltage goes up. Measuring this output voltage then gives you a measurement of what the of what the gas is doing to the laser so here's a little block diagram that shows that pretty much the same thing that I drew there if you put in an element that amplifies your round-trip signal and if you have some signal here the detected voltage and this is detected voltage minus the reference voltage and this is g times the detected voltage minus the reference voltage and the efficiency at which that gets converted into an optical signal I'll call A and then the efficiency at which that gets converted into an electronic signal over here I'll call B output signal has to equal the detected signal. And I can solve for the detected signal. So, if GAB is much greater than 1, then the detected voltage will always be equal to the reference voltage, meaning the system will always be at the same point, or essentially at the same point, or be suppressed by a factor very fluctuations in the detected voltage will be suppressed, whatever the reference voltage was. Any questions? Okay, next time we'll talk about how we do wavelength measurements.